and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Oren Hoffman, former CEO of LiveRamp and current CEO of SafeGraph. Oren has had one of the most storied careers of SaaS founders in the Valley, and he's known for having an often unique and contrarian perspective. In this conversation, we discuss why the best businesses are at the intersection of value creation, personal advantage, and a contrarian perspective whether businesses should target niches or broad markets, and the advantages of being older as computing power becomes more powerful. This one was a lot of fun. Welcome, Oren, and thanks so much for joining us. Ruben, thank you so much for having me. So, Oren, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on uh, the show today. You know, we have a number of founders, investors, and executives that come on to talk about their companies. Today, I'm excited to chat less specifically about, you know, any one of the number of companies you founded and, and more broadly about the lessons learned and your experience in Silicon Valley. So before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background, your journey through LiveRamp, and your current endeavor at SafeGraph. Sure. Uh, studied uh, engineering and data science at UC Berkeley. Started my first internet company right before my senior year in college, and then just kept starting companies from there. My current company, SafeGraph, was founded in 2016. And you have a you have an interesting lens on uh, how to think through starting a business, which is particularly interesting given the number of businesses you've started. You've written that you know the determination of the best business to start is at the intersection of value creation, personal advantage, and a contrarian perspective. How did you come up with that framework? Well, I mean, to make money as an investor, you you really need to accurately predict what will be important in the future, joined by uh, what people don't think will be important in the future. And as an entrepreneur, you just need to add one additional criteria to that Venn diagram, uh, which is that you also have to have some sort of background to make that vision in reality. So if you add those three things, you want to do the intersection of those three uh, circles for the Venn diagram. And and what was the practical application of that framework for a life ramp? Well, at, at the founding moment of, uh, moment of uh, live ramp, we believe the world was moving to a world where you're going to have a lot more software applications. And, and today that seems obvious, but at the time, 99% of pundits and bankers are, were all betting on consolidation. And we believe that there was going to be even more fragmentation and that companies would need some sort of middleware solution to stitch them all together. And we ended up accurately predicting that, that trend. And last time I checked, Walmart uses over 1,000 vendors just for its marketing team. And most companies today have more vendors than they do employees. And if we break the framework down into the component parts, I'm, I'm interested about the value creation lever. Uh, I know one of the key levers you think about in value creation is customer acquisition costs at scale. You've written about that, and you've also talked about the relationship with CAC at scale and, and network effects. But what are really the, what are the collection of key criteria you think about when assessing potential for value creation for that particular lever in your in your three circle of framework these customer acquisition costs are really important thing to look out for companies i think too many companies purely focus on the lifetime customer value divided by the customer acquisition costs that's that's the ltv to cac ratio um and and that can really hide a lot of things in the future especially since ltvs aren't exactly known at early stage companies the best companies figure out a way to lower their CACs over time. So if you think of like the Stripe, Slack, Segment, Plaid, Twilio, et cetera, what defines all of them is that they've got low CACs and they're declining over time. Uh, the companies that have increasing CACs over time are often just like fueled by cheap venture capital. 
And what do you think are the, some of those business models that's interesting? I've actually had some of those founders on the show, uh, and I think I can especially relate to the declining CAC at scale for segment. I just had Peter Reinhardt on the show. I'm curious, what does it tell you about a business model when at scale CAC gets more expensive versus less expensive, like the set of companies you described? Well, there, it probably means it, it could mean a, a lot of different things, but it probably means there's no accumulating advantage of that company. And so, while that it could be that could be a good company, it's probably not a great company. So, if you think of um, Facebook, like their their CACs decrease over time, or Google or Netflix, or you go through any great company and the CACs are decreasing over time. And how do you think about companies today that, especially for, you know, when we talk about CAC or spending, I think the latest stat is something to the tune of 40 cents of every venture dollar on, you know, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. How do you, how do you think about the increasing cost of CAC out of the gate just for online channels? Well, first of all, I, I, I've heard that stat a few times. I don't, I don't believe that stat. So that's probably, it's probably not even in the right order of magnitude. Say more, um, but, say more. I'm interested there. Uh, well, uh, I, I just don't know any, I, I don't know that many companies that are spending 40 cents of every dollar on Google, Amazon, and, and Facebook. I mean, there might be a small number of like B2C commerce companies that are, that are using those channels for their customer acquisitions co- or core, but most companies have a broad array, array of different types of channels to acquire customers. And then acquiring customers isn't like the only cost they have. They obviously have to pay for the employees of the people and they have to pay for a lot of other types of things that, that are, that are out there. Um, so, uh, it, it's, it's, so Google and, um, uh, and Facebook benefit from, and, uh, uh, from, from venture capital for sure. But companies like Amazon are benefiting a lot more from like AWS spend. Yep. How do you, you know, when you think about um, capturing value, how do you, how do you think about it from a sequential perspective? So uh, when I think about kind of sequential capture of value, I think of two schools of thought you know, on one side, you've got um, you know, the, the Peter Thiel approach, which is you go very deep into a niche and then you adjacently expand. And then on the opposite side, I'm, I'm thinking about the Keith Raboy's approach, which is you go horizontally expansive out of the gate. How, how do you think about kind of sequentially capturing value, understanding that it's different for, you know, business by business model, by industry, obviously, you know, by company, but do you have a general philosophy on either one of those schools of thoughts? I'm certainly biased toward the Peter Thiel strategy of dominating a niche and then moving into an adjacent niche. Uh, and I, I personally like companies where the total addressable market is small and also dominatable. Um, the, the companies that uh, and then the core thing there is making sure that a that the team can is smart enough to be able to move into adjacent markets when they're no longer growing at you know crazy fifty percent hundred percent year over year clip, um, and that the market is somewhat central. So it's at some point where there's some centrality of that market. The other thing is that often when the markets are small. You rarely underestimate the market when it's small. You usually, uh, sorry, you rarely overestimate the market when it's small. You usually underestimate the market. So at LiveRamp, we were doing this onboarding market. LiveRamp has probably 70 to 80% market share in the onboarding market. Originally, we thought the market was maybe 50 million a year in revenue. Today, um, it's probably uh, a few, it's probably three to 400 million in revenue. 
and it's still growing. So we vastly underestimated it was, an, it was a small niche, but we still underestimated that niche. And what do you what do you think systematically contributes to that? So if you look across and you say, you know, you know, to your statement that you just made right now, that the vast majority of companies typically underestimate uh, the market size of their niche. What what contributes to that underestimation typically? Well, if it's a if it's a big if it's a big market that they're going after, they'll they'll either estimate it correctly or they'll. Um, um, or they'll, they'll they may even overestimate that market, and that's because it's it's known. It's, so if you're estimating the market for um, hotel spend or something like that in the U.S., it's fairly known, and it, it, it may change. And but but you you, you have a, a decent understanding, or the amount spent on groceries every year or something like that is probably not going to change that much over time. Even if all these, even if it becomes a lot easier to buy groceries. Um, but when you're talking about a very small market, uh, that could change quite dramatically if you make it easier to buy or if you marketably improve that type of product or whatever it might be, or if you just kind of evangelize that. So the market for, um, I don't know, uh, some sort of like distinct cheese or something like that could grow quite dramatically if um, – if you really market that cheese and talk about why that cheese is so good and all of a sudden you can create all these people who are cheese lovers who maybe weren't spending that much money on cheese before. You've got an interesting perspective. You've, uh, you've written an article, I think pretty recently about this, of the idea of, you know, niche markets or, or total addressable market for a niche market is typically not a obstacle uh, or rather I should say it's not the root obstacle insofar as you're fundraising and not able to fundraise. And you've written that the the reality of having a niche market and uh, not being able to raise capital with a, with a byproduct explanation that your market size is too small is actually an indication of in lack of investor confidence of you and your team being able to move into an adjacent market, um, either swiftly or um, you know, being able to, to, to transition to the, to the next phase of growth. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. That's correct. So if a venture capital tells you where you know, we're passing because we think the market is too small, that is usually code for we're passing because we don't think the team is smart enough to move into adjacent markets once it dominates the current market. Talk a little bit more, expand a little bit more on that with with the with the practical application uh, from the perspective of, you know, when I think the adage for, you know, for founders or for folks that are getting into tech, you know, you consistently read about or when you talk to investors, you hear the you hear the idea that, you know, the three things that matter are product market and team um, and that phrasing or that framing of the way that uh, VCs or investors think about market. I think is an interesting one because it's not one that's you know as uh, as widely talked about. This nuance of you know niche market and the ability as a team to jump into an adjacent market. It's typically talked about in a relatively binary way of either the market is large enough, right, um, uh, and and that can either be existing market is large enough or small market but very fast growth rate. But it's typically not talked upon in the sense of small market not necessarily convinced it's got a hyper fast growth rate, but confidence that you can move to an adjacent market. The the best markets are the markets that are small so that you can, that there's little competition and that you can dominate those markets. 
and ideally that they're growing. You don't want them small and shrinking, right? So if you can pick a market that's both small and growing and ideally is growing faster than other people think they're growing, then you can have your cake and eat it too because you can you can dominate a market that it doesn't make sense for other people to to focus on. Um, and then you can um, and then you can take advantage of that growth. And then ideally that has some centrality of that market so that there's a lot of adjacent markets for you to move into when you're not growing as fast anymore. So let's let's talk let's talk about an application of, of that um, as it relates to a company that I really like and, and you're actually an investor in Carta. Um, I remember you know way back when when you know Henry Ward was starting the company, uh, he pitched at an event in in the valley, um, and it was a you know a panel of of great judges, folks like Naval Ravikant. And I think one of the specific feedbacks uh, pieces of feedback that Naval actually gave Henry was, if and and this was back you know back in 2013, really when Cardo was just starting out um, around that time frame, I believe he gave the piece of feedback that uh, and from then Henry had laid out the vision. You know, I'm trying to build a true private stock exchange. Naval had given them the feedback of, you know, if you're trying to build a true private stock exchange, don't go from you know A to B to C to D. Um, and rather just build D at the outset. And I, I think that's a little bit of a fore, uh, you know, a forewarning or, a, or an afterthought to the, the, you know, the horizontal expansion out of the gate approach. Uh, but if we, if we fast forward, I'm, and I, I look at it from the outside, and I'm not so sure that Carta could have been built to the scale it is today and, and you know, been, have laid the foundation of the tracks of the aspiration that it wants to go on without dominating, you know, a very, you know, vertical problem first, which was cap table management, you know, as a niche first and foremost. And then once you get all of cap tables into your system and you solve that pain point, you know, going going into the next piece and so on and so forth. How do you think about, you know, I, I know you have more of a bent to go the niche approach, but how do you think about businesses and business models in which it does make sense to, you know, take what Naval was saying and go at, you know, a large vision right out of the gate? versus the incremental build, which is, you know, basically build for one niche and then expand and then expand and then expand. Well, well, obviously it can depend on the circumstances, but but if you, if you look at the Carta situation, so Carta today really has a chance to be one of the great defining companies of our era. Uh, and they did a very, they did many, many smart things. I think you outlined really a lot of these things that they did where they started with the cap cable management niche. Now that then they slowly added other services like 409A valuations, and, and it's really proved to be a super strategy for for Carta, and a lot of other companies can look to that strata uh, strategy. The, the, there is some sort of sense of like A to B to C to D is not, is is really what all companies end up doing, uh, and it's really hard to think of a company that doesn't do A to B to C to D. Um, now they may have not outlined that strategy. It may be some ad hoc. It's like. It's unclear if like Facebook originally managed, uh, um, originally had the same idea of its current strategy. I don't know if, if AWS originally, if Amazon originally had the idea for AWS when it first started. Um, so it's it's hard to know what DEFGH is. Um, but having a long-term vision is good. But having that clear A is a very important thing to really get to really kind of dominate that market early. And to um, to have a lot of success early on, if you're just going to go create a stock market, um, that's going to be an extremely difficult endeavor with really very few wins over a period of eight years. 
So you could be banging your head. Now, maybe it does become this huge thing, but keeping a company and keeping employees motivated for eight years with no wins is extremely difficult thing to do. And having a series of wins along the way allows you to build momentum, allows you to attract capital, allows you to, to have great employees, uh, et cetera, as you kind of go after this very, very long-term vision. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you know future hubs of innovation and you know where the you know the the Cardas and and companies like that of the future get built. You've been in in Silicon Valley for uh, you know for a very long time and you've seen you know the boom and bust cycles and and all sorts of of shifts. You know there's obvious pros of of the valley, um, but over the last couple of years especially, it it feels like some of the you know, real negatives have actually started to come to bear. And I think it was Sam Altman that said in late 2017, uh, it started to be, you know, the first time in, in his opinion where it was non-obvious on, on whether to start a company in California or not. How do you think about, um, you know, the pros and cons of, of the Valley and, and the implications for future hubs of innovation? Well, Silicon Valley is still the best place for a 22-year-old to move to. So if you if you really don't need to be saving a lot of money, if you could spend most of it on housing, um, it's uh, probably a really good place to be. Um, but unless your goal in life is to be a billionaire, it can destroy wealth and happiness very, very quickly for a 35-year-old. So if you're a 35-year-old, you may want to look at other types of places. And more and more companies are going to be everywhere, which means they're they're going to be have more and more remote teams. People have been talking about this idea of a remote workforce for years, but now we finally have the management tools to make it a lot easier. Even Stripe, they just announced their new location is in Paris or Chicago. It's quote unquote remote. Um, and the winners of this kind of remote explosion are going to be millions of people who want to personalize their whole life and they want the advantages of being outside the Bay Area. And the losers are going to be people that own and operate commercial real estate, and probably one should be short on those companies. What do you think? What do you think are the implications for company creation and and kind of talent liquidity in a in a fully remote world? Uh, well, um, I think it's going to empower the the worker more even more so than, than the workers have been empowered recently in, in the Bay Area. Uh, because when you can work for any company in the world and not just the companies that are in your direct, um, direct, uh, um, uh, direct 10 mile radius, now you've got a, a much bigger aperture of places that you can look at. Your, your thought process of, you wrote a, a blog about this, a post about this recently, and I, I thought it was really fascinating. You, you talked about the thought process of jobs being presented in uh, adjusted after tax dollars. And, and that would make the, you know, the value proposition or, or the true gain or reward from a job all the more clear. Um, I want you to talk about that concept a little bit more, but then I also want you to apply it back to what you were just saying of, Silicon Valley being the best place in the world to move if you're 22, but a you know a potential quick source of value destruction or happiness destruction if you're 35. Well, one should think about their compensation and their wealth creation in kind of purchasing pay, uh, power parity, the, the PPP terms. So when you're evaluating a job offer, you should think about it in terms of PPP and, and, and essentially how much you're going to be saving at the end of the year. 
So if someone pays you uh, $100,000 in one location and $50,000 in another location, that actually could be quite different um, 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 in terms of your savings. You could actually end up saving a lot more with a $50,000 job than the $100,000 job. For instance, an offer in Dallas, Texas is likely worth at least 2x and maybe 3x an offer in New York City. Um, and, and part of that is taxes. So taxes are really important to think about. The, the top rate income tax in California is 54% um, total with state and federal. Um, and the top rate for capital gains is 36%. That's higher than most socialist European countries. And Europe has two advantages going for it. One is that it offers a ton of free services like healthcare. And two is that their, their tax system is actually riddled with loopholes. So it's actually a lot easier to avoid paying taxes than the U.S. system because the U.S. has this kind of nexus where any, anywhere outside the U.S. You, you, get, um, you make income from, you still have to pay the U.S. taxes on. Uh, the U.S. system, the, the one core tax break you get in the U.S. system is that you can move to a state with a lower tax rate. So if you go to states like Texas, New Hampshire, Florida, Washington, et cetera, they have 0% state taxes, which compare you know, extremely favorable with the 13.3% in California. And that's money that goes directly to your pocket and it compounds. So it compounds every single year. Um, and additionally, those same states often have much lower housing costs in Silicon Valley. So you get this double saving that compounds and can be really, really good for workers. Do you think the do you think there's an implication there for you know companies in which founders make a founders or early employees make a significant amount of wealth um, through a company in a California and you know as soon as a company goes public, um, there's there's kind of a brain drain of that cohort. Do you anticipate that? I don't know about that. Um, so, but as as it becomes easier and easier to do remote work, it makes a lot more sense for people to um, to to think about PPP and to think about um, uh, lower their housing costs and think about lowering their tax bill. Um, and uh, and there's also a whole bunch of other lifestyle reasons why it could make a lot of sense for for somebody. And the the top rate taxes. Is 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 really hurts the 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 worker that um, gets like a windfall every every five to eight years, um, much more than it hurts the 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 the, the true multi millionaire. So if you think of if you're an engineer at a startup um, and you're you know you make a, a decent salary but you're you're not you're not rich, and then one day that startup gets acquired. And then that one one year, you have an extremely high taxable event. Now you're in the highest tax bracket for that year. Um, it's not like it averages out over the last 10 years. So it can really hurt that individual engineer quite a bit uh, more than, um, than it would hurt maybe um, uh, a venture capitalist, which is always having high income every single year. As, as you think about kind of the... Um, how you know innovation hubs continue to decentralize out of the valley, right? Not necessarily because of something particular to a city or a hub outside the valley, but more so on on this thread of remote work that we're talking. One of the interesting things to me has been in in tech, especially the traditional perspective has been, you know, being young is is an advantage in startups, and and I think there's a lot to be said for that, right? Energy, risk tolerance, speed. Um, you, you've had an interesting, you wrote something interesting recently about how there's actually, as computers improve, 
there's massive advantages to being older. Talk about that concept a little bit more and what drove that thinking. Well, as computers get better and better, um, this could potentially advantage the 55-year-old more than it advantages the 25-year-old, especially if that 55-year-old is decent at using technology. So computers are just good at a lot of the same things that young people are good at. They have a ton of energy. They have great raw brain power. They have extra time. Um, older tent people tend to be good at things like connection, stature, cunning, wisdom. Um, they tend to have a lot more money than younger people. So they have advantages that maybe just extra compute power isn't going to necessarily give you. So um, potentially the, the, the real a person to bet on before is that super talented 55-year-old that still has the energy to take on a startup. I imagine she or he will be a really good bet in this kind of new compute age. One of the most interesting experiences for me, you know, personally, as, as I've, I've transitioned roles in, in the last 100 days, actually, and, and now lead an organization of about 80, 80 folks, is how I've started to think more, more and more about people and, and people issues in companies. And I, I wanted to dive into some of the lessons you know, uh, that you've learned on, on hiring and scaling. The first one, uh, two in particular, and the, and the first one is firing too quickly. Um, and and um, the risk of firing too quickly. It's especially interesting to me because it goes against the you know, traditional adage of hire slow, fire fast. What's Talk a little bit more about your perspective on, on the risk of firing too quickly. Well, uh, I, there are plenty of situations where um, moving this person to another place in the company obviously depends on how big the company is but moving this person to another place in the company could allow them to thrive and that they were just really just not in the right role for them. And by being creative and coming up with another role, they could actually thrive. You hire them initially for some sort of reason because you saw something in this person. Um, and so often it makes some sense to make some sort of investment in them. But even much more importantly than thinking about firing is a figure out is to do everything possible to figure out a way not to hire in the first place. So you have 80 people. Now try to imagine what it's like to run that same organization with 40 people. How would it look like? What do you need to have in place? How would the people have to change? How would the systems have to change? What technology would you have to invest in? If you think of companies like WhatsApp and Instagram, they build enormously impactful services with extremely tiny teams. That is going to be what the future is going to look like. Uh, where you get as much leverage as possible. The leverage may may not help you save any money because hiring, uh, getting all this additional technology that you're going to need um, is going to be expensive, but it's going to allow you to move much, much faster because there's there's just a very high people coordination problem. Every time you add a person, you're going to add more complexity to the organization. Maybe terribly run organizations have an N squared um, communication problem, but even extremely well-run organizations have an N over two or N over three communication problem where N is the number of employees. And so having as few employees as possible is going to be the key to success in the future. One of the things I think about when I when I hear the way you're framing it and I think about leverage is there's there's kind of two, two constructs or so. One is obviously um, having a business model, having, you know, leveraging technology, uh, having an organization in which you get you know, to the optimized set of people. But then even within the optimized set of people, it's identifying kind of 10x type folks, right? Folks that 
Uh, if you say, you know, if you take the example you were framing and saying, let's say in my organization, you go from 80 down to 40, that's the ideal amount. You still within that set of 40 want to find folks that are that are 10x type people. And, and we talk a lot in tech about 10x products, you know, 10x employees. Um, and and I'm curious from your perspective, um, you know, what makes it, uh, I, I personally find that to be a very, very challenging problem. I think there's a lot talked about that, but I, I still haven't quite devise, you know, the perfect formula or the perfect set of criteria to, to find a 10x type person. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what, what your experience has been, uh, what makes it from, from your perspective challenging, you know, ex ante to find that type of person? And, and what are the constructs you've created to try and assess for that? Well, I don't know that it's possible to know ahead of time if someone's going to be a 10x person. Um, and so I certainly have not figured that out. Uh, I think there's two things that you can do um, once you hire people. Obviously, once you hire someone, you're hiring someone because you believe they have a lot of potential and you believe they're going to be very good in your organization. Otherwise, you wouldn't have hired them in the first place. Um, so you have two opportunities once you hire them. One is that you can do everything possible to grow those people. Uh, maybe you can't 10x, maybe they can't be a 10xer, but maybe they can be a 2xer or a 3xer. Um, so how do you grow those people? Well, um, the best way to grow those people is to give them really hard things to do, um, uh, stretch them, uh, give them challenges, make them, uh, make them have a high learning cur curve so they continue to grow. And then if you happen to have hired a person that is a 10Xer or grows to be a 10Xer, you should do everything possible to not let them go. This is the number one thing that most companies do wrong. They happen to hire a 10 xer Maybe it's by complete accident that they hire that 10 xer And then they do everything possible to make it challenging for that 10 xer to stay in the organization that 10 xer eventually leaves. Um, and if you want to keep a 10 xer then you have to give them more and more responsibility over time so that they have a really high learning curve. So that means you can't layer them in the organization. If you have a 10 xer and they're on a high growth path, then they, have to, they may have to leapfrog in their promotions. Maybe they have to get a double promotion or a triple promotion. Um, you, can't be, uh, you can't be saddling them with too much bureaucracy. So you have to do everything possible to make sure that 10Xer stays in your company long term. What are the, what are the challenges you see when you see operators and, and organizations that don't do that well? Um, what are typically the challenges that they're grappling with or what is the perception uh, you know, in, in the founder's mind or the executive's mind that, that prevent that? Because I think, you know, if, if you think about that in a vacuum, it's a relatively non-controversial statement to say, you know, as a leader in an organization, you want 10x people. And so I'm curious, you know, when you actually pragmatically apply that and you see constructs in which uh, companies aren't either promoting 10x people, putting them in an environment to succeed, what are, what are the typical um, struggles or kind of downfalls you see? Well, um, if you hired a 10x person, uh, that likely means that um, that they're relatively early in their career um, because otherwise probably they wouldn't have joined your company. So that, that's yep. just a likely yep. is the case, right? So that means if they're early in their career that they're, they have less experience. So um, when, when you hire them initially, they're going to be in a, in a role that maybe, um, maybe makes sense for somebody who has less experience. But if they're a 10Xer, then they should be able to take on a lot more responsibility very, very quickly. And, um, and that's sometimes very hard for organizations to do. Uh, so there's just certain types of patterns that they have. 
Um, you know, for instance, uh, you, you can't become a general in the U.S. Army before the age of 40. Uh, it's basically impossible to be able to do that. So if you're a 32-year-old 10Xer, like you're not going to be a general. Um, and so that's just the path that it works. So it, it may be hard to keep that person unless you can do other types of things to keep them motivated. And maybe the Army does do a good job of doing that, but certain organizations have struggled with that. As we round out the conversation, Oren, uh, Aaron, and with our with our final question, I wanted to make sure we touched on you know one of the ideas that you've put out that I find extremely fascinating and and, and actually just very interesting and and um, and unique, which is this idea that uh, it's the idea around peak planning and how we're at a moment in time where where you believe we've reached you know peak planner status. Talk a little bit about the underlying shifts for why you believe we're at peak planning and and the implications for the future? Well, in the past, the best way to make a living was to be a planner. So that's basically someone who is really good at logistics. And that person was always going to have a good job. The 10 millionth best person in the world at logistics still makes over $100,000 a year. Um, that the, the, the other type of person who we all know, the other type of stereotype person is that creative artist or the absent-minded professor. And, and that person has historically been at a real disadvantage in, in our world because they maybe lack some of the planning skills. Um, but most of all the new tools that are coming out, most of the new um, apps that are on your phone, almost Almost all of them are focused on making it easier and easier for people to plan and easier and easier for people to get immediate satisfaction with really no need to plan at all. Um, so in your personal life, you can get immediate access to food or videos or dates or pretty much anything you want very, very quickly without really any planning at all. It used to be you had a plan even like to watch TV. You had to be at home at a certain time to watch TV or at least you had to like set your VCR to go do that, there, there's really no need to do those things anymore. And even in the business world, like all these things that used to require planning, now you can go do, you can get space quickly with WeWork, you can spin up servers in an instant with AWS. So planning today is just much less important than it was 20 years ago. And the 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 planning in general will likely decline in importance every year in the future. Warren, this has been a, a really, really interesting conversation. A lot of a lot of great insights, and I'm I'm really glad you were able to make the time today. So thanks again for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on. Thank you so much, Romine, and I encourage your listeners to interact with me on Twitter or visit my blog at summation.net. Absolutely, we'll definitely link this in in the Medium post. Summation is is one of my favorite blogs, so we'll we'll definitely have have our listeners uh, check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much.